Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin the program, though, by talking about this market. We can bring in Rob Waldner of Invesco. Rob, you've made it pretty clear. You think it's time to move to a more cautious risk stance on risky assets. I'll start with a short one. Why? Well, uh, John, thanks for having me this morning. What's driving markets here uh, is, is, is really policy, right? It, it, and I'll give you a few statistics. We have, uh, you know, we talked about treasuries just a moment ago. You know, real yields in the treasury market are, 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 are very low. So if you look at real yields, they've continued to decline. We have five-year real yields of minus 100 basis points. Uh, real 10-year yields minus 80 basis points. We have a Fed that is, continues to be active in the market, which is the reason why we've gotten this big bounce off of the bottom. And if you look at what happened in June, it becomes very, very clear what the, that is what's driving things. So in June, we saw investment grade, which we know that the Fed is buying, continue to rally. Investments grade, uh, investment grade spreads tightened by about 24 basis points or so in June. High yield uh, did not rally as much. Uh, spreads tightened much less. Annual bank loans kind of went sideways in June. And, and the reason for that is that the, the IG is, is very closely tied to uh, Fed policy as the Fed is actually buying. So our mantra has been buy what the central banks are buying, buy what the central banks are supporting, because the fundamentals um, themselves, underlying fundamentals right. around disease are not that positive. Rob, Dan Kassov of BMP Baribas was lights out in the last hour talking about, you know, nominal yields can stay where they are, folks, the visible interest rate that we see. And yet with rising inflation, those real yields could drive ever, ever lower. I have trouble believing that's a stable process. Will that be a stable process or do you look for bond price volatility? Well, Tom, the Fed, I think, is trying to make sure that's as stable a, pro a process as possible. You know, Treasury volatility, so take the move index, for instance, which is a measure of Treasury volatility, is at its lows. So the Fed, I think, is it, with their with their forward guidance and what what they their their policy going forward will be to try and maintain that stability in the short end of the market, at least, uh, so that you can have uh, these real yields continue to decline. Uh, obviously, there's a point, a breaking point where they may lose control, uh, but that will be well in the future in our view. So they will continue to be able to control the level of nominal rates to some extent. Um, and if inflation expectations rise, which they have been recently in the is priced in the market, uh, that means real yields go down. Rob, what does a cautious stance mean at a time when there is discretion in markets where you have the best quality assets with extremely high prices and the riskiest assets, the ones where you see companies closest to default, priced as such? How are you cautious in this environment? Uh, so what, what we again, what we would advocate is, you know, own what the Fed is is buying, own what the central banks are buying. So in Europe, that is corporate bonds. In the U.S., here it is IG, uh, it, it is mortgages, uh, because those assets, uh, you know, will be supported. The central banks are driving that. Uh, we're a little bit more cautious on uh, on assets that are, are more dependent upon the economic recovery. So the economic recovery clearly bottomed, I think. 
Some good news in our view is that we bottomed a little bit, you know, less down in the United States in, the, in terms of the economy. It didn't dip quite as much as we were fearing. Um, but this open, reopening process is in train, but it is not clear to us at all how this reopening process is going to go, especially given the viral pickups track pickup that we've seen uh, in some states recently. Rob, Lisa touches on something really, really important now. Everybody is crowding into the same trades. You're not the first. You won't be the last to come on this program and talk about following the Fed, going into U.S. investment grade. Do we need to think about redefining what is considered safe in this market? Well, you know, the, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, if I, when I came on the program the last time, I, I would have said exactly that, which is buy what the Fed is buying. And, you know, the fact is that in June, that worked. Um, in June, that worked. We think probably in July, that'll continue to work. Um, redefining what is safe, uh, you know, the, the, that is a fundamental problem for the market here, John, because, uh, you know, the safe asset now has very, very little yield to it. So as we think about building portfolios, and I think there's a portfolio construction question, really, right? But with, with such a low um, rate of, of yield for the risk-free asset, we need to think uh, about other assets that we can use uh, to support that. And, and, and again, investment-grade bonds, uh, you know, spreads are what, 140 over right now. Um, investment-grade bonds where we the, the risk of, of imminent default is not there. Um, the volatility comes in spread, and the Fed is in managing that volatility. That seems like a pretty safe asset to us. Rob, where's the unsafe asset? I mean, the real question here is, I, I, get, I get the idea of IG, but where do I not want to be in fixed income? Uh, well, you know, I think the things that, that you might want to be, that, that require, so I, rather than say don't want to be there, where you really have to do your fundamental work is, is in uh, assets that are more directly tied to specific sectors of the economy. So we know for instance, the you know the high yield default rate is picked up. We're what running about three and a half percent, I think, now in high yield defaults. That's not a big number, um, but there are hidden in that there are idiosyncratic issues. Uh, we know the defaults are picked up in energy and a couple of other sectors. So you know what we would say, Tom, is those things that are uh, that are tied more directly to the economic outcomes. Uh, we need to be you need to do your homework on. John, I find this conversation so interesting because to your point that you were talking about earlier, a lot of people are following the Fed. Initially, it was trying to front run the Fed. Now it's don't fight the Fed and follow the Fed. And you're seeing this in flows incoming into the biggest investment grade corporate ETF. I just want to give you this nugget. There has been $1.2 billion put into this fund in the past week alone with another $202 million put overnight. This trend has not gone away. And it does raise a question, John. At what point has the Fed fully been priced in and are they going to be unwilling to continue to backstop credit markets? And how does that rearrange what we are going to see going forward? Lisa, it's an important question. And I think Rob's addressing the portfolio construction component of that question. I think it's really important, Rob. In the next drawdown, in the next downturn, what's going to give me that downside protection in my, my portfolio with 10-year treasury yields just stuck between 10, say, 60 to 70 basis points on a 10-year? Well, you make a great point, Jonathan, which is that, that you know, there's less, there's obviously much less downside for yields uh, in, in portfolios right now. So you have to be more, a little bit more sophisticated in how you build your portfolio. And again, 
you know, investment grade is a good is a good way to think about uh, uh, adding some safety. Uh, but you, 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 the traditional way of using treasuries as your risk free asset, to your point, is 100% valid. Which is there's much less downside uh, available in yields right now, so much less underlying protection, if you like. Rob Waldner, always appreciate your time, sir. Our best to the team over at Invesco. Rob Waldner there of Invesco Advisors. Right now, get out the calendar. It is July, and it is July-ish on the way to, well, you know, earnings season. It is total chaos, but we need perspective, and we get that from the Bank of America and their equity strategist, Jill Carey Hall. Jill, there's eight ways to go here, and I love the detail of your research note, given the present chaos. I want to go to somewhat minutia, which is the wiggle room corporations have with capital expenditures. The way they do this is they reduce them in crisis. Is that what's happening now? Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely, we're seeing that, um, you know, overall corporate cash deployment has come down. We've seen about 20% of the S&P 500 suspending buybacks. We've seen a little over 10% of the index suspending dividends. And then CapEx has really been an area that, that corporations have cut back on. Um, when when we look at, you know, what happened last quarter, CapEx spending was, it was essentially flattish, um, and then this right. quarter, we think it'll continue to remain weak when we look at CapEx guidance, which some companies will give on, on their planned spending. That's been extremely weak. Um, you have very few companies, you know, giving it now to begin with as overall guidance has grown right. scarce. Well, but for the ones, the ones that are, it's, you know, pretty close to, to 2009 levels. So there's sort of that disconnect between the improvement we've seen in the ISM and, and companies okay. are still very negative. What I note, Jill, is Mr. Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway take out Dominion, and Dominion is actually going to deploy the billions from Mr. Buffett over to a more conservative tone on their balance sheet. Would you expect that to happen throughout all of corporate America? Well, I think what we've seen when you look at, you know, the Bank of America Global Fund Managers Survey, investors have really honed in on companies' balance sheets. Um, there's a lot of leverage out there, particularly down the, the market cap spectrum. So investors have been been wanting companies to use their excess cash to, to clean up their balance sheets over other cash uses. Now, we have been in this lackluster CapEx environment. So, you know, I think there is sort of a demand for that as well, you know, where, where companies can invest in areas that it makes sense. Um, and, and certainly that, that's beneficiary for, for companies, um, whether it's tech CapEx or more traditional industrial CapEx. Um, but I, I think right now a lot of companies are really being cautious on, on deploying big projects given the uncertain environment. Um, so, so we're not looking for a, a big CapEx boom this year, but, but certainly if um, economic conditions continue to, to improve, we'll be watching the guidance closely to, to see if that can suggest a pickup. Jill, we're seeing that this morning. Walgreens coming out, cutting over 4,000 jobs, suspending the share buyback. Saw it yesterday evening, Bed Bath & Beyond cutting stores as well. We see this every single day. Is this why you think we need to own the mega cap stocks with the strongest balance sheets versus the small cap stocks with something a little bit more fragile beneath the surface? 
Yeah, so we we continue to to prefer large over small caps right now. I think you know overall the the fundamental backdrop is still much weaker down the cap spectrum. So this this earnings season, which kicks off next week, large cap earnings should fall about forty percent year over year. Um, small cap earnings are going to be falling a lot greater. Analysts are looking for about you know one hundred percent year over year decline in earnings for small caps. Um, so so even though. Um, you know, recovery certainly benefits small caps. So if we we see a more sustainable recovery and and we stop seeing a pickup in cases, that that could be positive. But obviously, the fact that um, you know there's a lot of fear right now about the the rise in cases, um, small caps have been generally underperforming again since early June. Escalating trade tensions are, are another risk there, and, and one of the key reasons smaller stocks underperformed in, in 2019. So you also have really expensive valuations, not across the cap spectrum, but for small and mid caps, they're at, at record highs right now. Um, and, and a lot of the economic data on reopening suggests you're starting to see stalling or decelerating trends for small businesses. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, balance sheets are a lot cleaner for, for larger stocks. You have a lot higher quality for for the S&P 500 relative to small cap benchmarks. So, you know, that that's still something we're, we're thinking about right now. But, but certainly, if you are an investor in small caps, still opportunities, you know, if we do see a, a bit of a tactical rotation into into value, um, you know, that that's something we expect could work across the market. But but being more selective within small caps makes sense, uh, just given that that a lot of the, the value stocks within small caps have been become increasingly synonymous with with leverage and risk. Jill, your comments make a lot of sense. Your caution makes a lot of sense uh, with the bigger picture of the pandemic and the accelerating job losses in some sectors. At the same time, valuations have reflected this. And there's a theory out there put out by J.P. Morgan that really the surprise could be to the upside if we get a stalling out of the pandemic or better than expected data. And you could see that small caps rally and some of the larger caps, the mega tech stocks, sell off given where valuations are. Why? is that flawed in your opinion? Well, I think if we if we do see a much more sustainable recovery, you know, th- that is when when we've looked at size and style performance, you do tend to see um, small cap stocks, value stocks tend to rally during those those early recovery stages of the cycle. So we obviously saw some early innings of that, and and now that's that's called into question. You know, I think one risk this time is that small caps were just a lot worse positioned going into this crisis than they were going into a lot of the the prior recessions. Um, you know, they had record leverage ratios that they've never had before. They've benefited from uh, QE and all the access <clears throat> to cheap capital. Um, yeah. You know, they're a lot lower quality today. So, and it's a crisis that hurt small businesses. So I think there's some additional risks there as well as around trade. Uh, uh, Jill, Jill, this is a huge deal. Come on, we've got this company, Boot. John Farrell mentioned Boots out with layoffs. We got Walgreens with layoffs, and on and on and on. There's going to be a job carnage out there. The Chancellor of the Exchequer spoke about it yesterday. Vice President Biden's going to speak about it today. What is the elasticity of those job cuts to the revenue line of small, mid, and large cap? The answer is small cap's going to get absolutely crushed on this, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the labor market backdrop and, and like I said, the, the data we've been seeing kind of stalling and decelerating for small businesses is a big risk. And, you know, overall for, for the market, we think there's a lot of risk of, you know, just payback okay. risk as we've seen all the stimulus and moving out into year end and then as, as volatility picks up around the election. So, you know, we're at, at, at this point, we're even for the S&P 500, the market's trading <clears throat> above our right. 2900 target for year end. So, um, so we're more neutral on equities at this point and, and think it makes sense for investors to, to really kind of pick okay, their but, spots. OK, the one final question then, and folks, I'm distraught this morning because I have my pasta maker on order at Sur La Tabla and they announced they're going bankrupt this morning or last night or whatever. And I may never able to make the pasta to have Farrah over so he can get some really good quality Tom Keen Italian pasta. That's all great, but it's going to come in an Amazon box. What? does the CapEx reduction, what do the job layoffs do to the top-line fundamentals of Apple and Amazon and the others? Are they immune from this dynamic? Well, I think, you know, and, and Amazon and some of those companies are, are actually the, the ones that have been, been the CapEx spenders during this current crisis and kind of keeping S&P 500 CapEx positive as all of the commodity-oriented areas have cut back significantly. Um, but but then in terms of CapEx beneficiaries, uh, you, you've certainly seen kind of a slowdown across the board in, in terms of both you know, more cyclical CapEx spending from the commodity complex and then overall spending on tech. But, but if we are in a more permanent, you know, work from home type of environment, uh, certainly some of the, the mega cap tech companies have benefited. We're, we're equal weight tech overall. We think tech looks very positive, fundamentally strong balance sheets. Um, but, but obviously that's one sector where there could potentially be regulatory right. risks um, that, that tech has largely escaped up until this point. Um, so as we go into the election, that's you know, one of the reasons we've just been equal weight uh, in addition to obviously the, the very strong run it's had. Jill, brilliant catching up with you. As always, love hearing from you. My best to you and the team at Bank of America. Say hello to Savita for us as well. Jill Kerry Hall there of Bank of America. To give us perspective and the dynamic here, and particularly to get to August, Michael Gapin joins from Barclays Capital. Michael, do you have any ability to forecast, estimate, a judge August? Right now, not, not a lot. I think that we would, as Jonathan said, give a little more credibility to some of these high-frequency mobility data, restaurant bookings. Uh, I, in particular, watch the Dallas Fed's mobility and engagement index. The claims data just don't have as clear of a signal for all the reasons that you've discussed in recent weeks, including backlogs and processing. And we're in this very strange situation where, where the separation side of the labor market is still bad, but claims really only tell us about half the story. The other half has been a tremendous pickup in, in the hiring rate. So we're in this odd period where we can have a high level of claims, unusually extraordinarily high level of claims, but still have an improving labor market. So August, I right. think, is probably more, more about COVID cases, a willingness to move around still, not so much about what the labor market is saying today. And what's so important in that insight, folks, is from Dr. Gape and the idea of claims being a one-sided view. Can there be a one or two or even three-sided view of the distinction between furloughs and layoffs and firings? 
In the short run, yes. Somewhere in the long run, no. And so there's this tension in labor markets, as you know, where where most, the vast majority of people unemployed right now consider themselves temporarily unemployed. But as we've seen, even though the labor market has been improving and the number of unemployed has come down, a greater share of those layoffs or unemployed are now starting to be booked as more permanent unemployment. So as as this gets prolonged into August, September, and October, I, I think, no, there's there's that difference is just in name only, and we risk a temporary unemployed worker turning into a long-term unemployed worker. And that's the scarring that the Federal Reserve, of course, is trying to avoid. And we're seeing that in the numbers, Michael, the churn beneath the surface. The net change is positive, but beneath the surface, we're starting to see permanent layoffs build again. We've had so many different companies in the last 24 hours announce job cuts, store closures. The worries about the second wave of layoffs, are we starting to see evidence of it? Yes, absolutely. I think there's been a narrative that that says that business models under pressure, retail is the most obvious case of this, that if firms were thinking of making major transformations over a two to three year horizon, that those would be brought forward. So COVID is accelerating some of those structural changes. And I think what you're seeing now is firms have had several months to assess the state of play. They're now making plans. And so we're getting some some word and some releases that those those plans include more layoffs. I think those are probably layoffs that are being brought forward relative to where plans would have stood in January and February. Michael, some analysts and some traders would say economists are just being chicken little right now. And you're seeing this in the economic surprise index in the United States, which is surging to a record high as economists' projections come in too low again and again and again. And certainly today with the jobs report, do you take that as a sign that economists are being too pessimistic and and, and sort of accounting for a greater amount of permanent layoffs than the market really will sustain? Or do you view this as just how difficult it is to gauge a labor market in such dramatic flux? Well, I'm 6'9", so I've never really been described as as little. Um, But the way that I look (laughs) at this is we, I mean, yes, it is true that we've been surprised to the upside. But it's, in my view, it's been mainly on the good side of the economy. The good sector can rebound quickly. It has been the case that that has happened. It's happened in the U.S. and globally. Spending by households on goods is only a little bit short of where it was in February. That's rebounded. From here, though, is if, if the rest of the economy is going to recover and we're going to get continued upside surprises, it has to come out of services. So while the goods sector has recovered about half of the lost jobs that we saw in March and April, the service sector has only recovered about a third. So I think it's a, what we're seeing at the moment is the goods sector rebounding quickly. Economists are still thinking a little bit more longer term about, well, this is a service-oriented economy. It's roughly 70 to 80 percent of where the economy is going. And there's still a lot of after effects from COVID that could affect the services sector. So I think we're thinking a little more longer term, but we have to accept the fact that the near-term bounce has been stronger than we thought. Lisa, rules of engagement. We insult the economists after the interview, not during the interview. Just save it just for a couple more minutes. Michael, I do have a question for you, sir, about the recovery. And when you expect it to flatten it out, is this a story we should look for for the back end of August, later this summer? Where are you focused on on the calendar? 
I think that's exactly right. We uh, It happened about two to three weeks quicker than we thought, and given the flows and the magnitudes that we're discussing, it's it's meant a lot of outperformance. Uh, and, and so, therefore, I think you're, you're seeing May and June and July are probably going to be pretty strong numbers. And then as you get into August and September, if we're still dealing with coronavirus outbreaks, increased hospitalizations, and backpedaling on phased reopenings, then you, you'd likely see a sloughing off or at least a moderation in the rate of improvement from, from there. And that's why I think we and others are still calling on, on phase four stimulus as needed to help bridge the economy a little further into the year. So if we get the phase four stimulus, I think it'll help. Certainly, we would expect a larger sloughing off in activity if, if we don't. So it is a critical piece of the forecast, as well as what's happening underneath in, in, in terms of COVID and a willingness to rehire. To be clear, John, I knew that Michael was very tall, so I knew he could handle being uh, referred to in a profession of chicken littles, because that is sort of, of what some people are saying. So to be very clear, but Michael, I do want to get your sense when you talk about stimulus. Can you talk to our earlier conversation with Claudia Sam about the most effective stimulus that we have seen thus far coming from the U.S. government? I think well, I, I think it's been I think it's been twofold. One, I mean, I'm I'm going to include some Fed policy here as stimulus because it's just emergency liquidity provision. But I think the the combination of of the PPP it came late and it needed to be remodified and it needed to be upsized. But I think we saw in May and June that it likely helped uh, hold in a lot of employment. So I think the PPP. Uh, at the end of the day has been fairly successful. And then I think on the other side of it, it's, it's just tax rebate payments or rebate payments to households plus the unemployment benefits. So this is not traditional stimulus in the sense of households have a lot of income and we're trying to add something on top of that that wasn't expected. This is about income replacement. Uh, and so I, I think the, the I would say number one has been the income replacement on, on household balance sheets. And number two has been, you know, getting some wage and salary support to small and medium business through the PPP. To me, those two have been the most important. Michael, always great to catch up with you, sir. Send my best to the team. Michael Capen there at Barclays, the chief U.S. economist. Right now, it is front and center. I'm sure the vice president will address it, as will the president uh, today, as will Vice President Pence, I should uh, point out. And that is this continuing pandemic. You've been following it, the case dynamics, the death dynamics. Just recently, we started to see hospital supplies running low again. We get perspective from Jason Farley, the Johns Hopkins University. Yeah, well, the CDC just came out with recent data. Uh, it was actually from six of ten different states and local regions, and they used the blood supply, basically. So if you've had blood uh, obtained for any particular reason in a commercial lab um, in the United States, in these six geographic regions, they took samples that were used for other tests and tested them for antibody. And what they found was that the increase actual prevalence of antibody positivity was between six and 24 times higher than current estimates. And so just really large estimates of population penetrance of this virus. And so what that means, however, is, is to be determined. We don't know how many people got tested and had already lost antibody. 
Uh, we don't also know how many people might have tested false positive, although we think it's, it's a smaller proportion. There are, there are people who can test false positive for antibody. Um, so it's a, it's a really important data point, uh, and it really tells us that we are missing still a lot of cases in the community. So, Jason, so infections between 6 to 24 times higher rates of infection, what does that give us? Like 10% of the population could have already had COVID-19? Yeah, well, most estimates are generally less than 5%, but when you look really at these numbers, um, you're really showing upwards of, you know, 10% in some localities. Um, so it's really, it's really critical that people continue all of the non-pharmacological interventions, uh, social distancing, mask wearing, uh, and, and really just understand that a fairly large number of people in a geographic region have been exposed to the virus. Jason, another, you know, I guess repercussion because of COVID-19 is that the student and exchange visitor program in the U.S. has been modified. So people that, that had a visa but now are on online courses have, I believe, been asked to maybe go back to um, the countries where they were initially from. D does that mean that this is also being used as an immigration policy? Well, it's certainly putting restraint on the, the ways in which uh, we in colleges and universities across the country can flex our programs for the fall. Uh, we had had restrictions for the F-1 visa program, the, the visa program that allows foreign nationals to study in the United States, uh, loosened uh, in the spring semester uh, through the summer. We have now received word that that is not going to be the case for the fall, suggesting that anyone on a visa for, for academic purposes must attend face-to-face -face classes. They can attend at most one class that's fully online, which really hampers our ability to think about the ways in which we plan for the fall uh, semesters. So in other words, faculty, staff, students who are on F-1 visas, the, the students in particular on F-1 visas must be in a classroom-based face-to-face and not online. And it, it really does put um, universities in, in a, quite a, a pickle, frankly, um, when we think about the ways in which we can offer education to those students. Jason Farley with the Johns Hopkins University an update on the pandemic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.